Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, I sit down with Stefan Lavera, who is the host of the Stefan Lavera podcast, a podcast about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. He's actually one of the guys that really convinced me that Bitcoin was something that I should look at much more deeply. I'd already dipped my toe into the water with Bitcoin, and he was one of the podcasts that I listened to kind of over and over all the different episodes where I was really trying to poke holes in some of my decision-making around this. And for those of you who are not aware, Bitcoin plays a role in one of the three buckets we always talk about where you have to have short-term access to some money for you know everyday life. You have to have a bucket of income-producing assets. For some people, that is their career. For other people, they want to add on a layer to that, and that would be a hard asset like real estate that's also income-producing, and you're kind of developing that bucket. It's obviously something we do and spend a lot of time here at Rockstar discussing. And then there's this third bucket that if you are fortunate enough to build up some savings and some wealth, you want to save it in a vehicle or a technology that's going to keep its purchasing power. And Bitcoin kind of popped up as an option for us. And we've really been exploring it now, I guess, since 2020 rather deeply. And he was one of the podcasts that really helped explain some of the technical nature and components of it. And it really kind of made me evolve my thinking into what Bitcoin was. So it's really an honor for me to have him on the show here. There is so much to discuss with him. He's coming in from Dubai. He's not coming in. We're doing it from Zoom, but he's in Dubai. Um, he is raised in Australia. You'll get a bit of his life story in this particular episode. And we just talk about democracy, money, uh, Bitcoin, and cover a bunch of topics. I really think you're going to enjoy it. So that's what we're doing on this particular episode. You can find him on Twitter at Stefan Lavera. We'll put um, a link to that in the show notes of this particular episode and then all the other links to what he's doing at Swan Bitcoin is linked off his Twitter profile for you to find. And if you are listening to this and you want to dive into real estate and creating some savings for yourself and protecting your purchasing power and trying to build a life where you're able to live life on your terms, that's what we're doing here with the Rockstar Inner Circle membership. And you can check out all the things that you get as, as you become a Rockstar Inner Circle member by visiting rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. So that's the URL to go to for that. And that is enough with this intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we have uh, Stefan Lavera on the podcast with us. And Stefan, thank you for doing this. You don't know us, so I really appreciate you doing this. And for those people who have not heard of you before, can you give kind of just a quick backstory of how the heck are we speaking to you right now? How did you dive into this podcasting world? What are you doing with your life right now, Stefan? <laughs> well, yeah, firstly, thank you for inviting me, Tom. My name is Stefan Lavera. I'm mostly known for my podcast, Stefan Lavera Podcast, which is a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. I am also head of education at swan.com. Now, in terms of how did I get into this whole world? I was already skeptical of central banking and of fiat currency. And so when I had that moment in late 2012, for me, I came across this article and it just kind of spelled out the vision of Bitcoin. It sort of spelled it out saying, hey, actually, this thing can challenge central banks, right? Like most people, I disregarded Bitcoin or I had, I'd seen some random news articles, but I'd never really looked deeply into it. I just figured it was something like World of Warcraft gold, some kind of in-game currency, whatever, who cares? But that article, December 2012, that was the moment for me. That was when I took the so-called orange pill. Uh, now, 
from then on, I couldn't stop talking and shouting from the rooftops about Bitcoin. And so I have been, you know, trying to teach anyone I can about Bitcoin, Austrian economics, and the philosophy of libertarianism. And so these are the things that I'm often doing nowadays. I'm obviously speaking at podcasts and on conferences and all kinds of things to, just to educate about Bitcoin. I uh, started my podcast in 2018 and I uh, have used that really as a vehicle to get out there and teach people about Bitcoin. I've had millions of downloads by now and you know, many, uh, many of those people who I've helped to teach have now gone on to teach many other people themselves. And so when you talk to people about libertarian, and I want to thank you, let's put this on the record. You're one of the podcasts I listened to that made me go deep into Bitcoin in 2020, because I think it was listening to you. And I remember thinking, oh, this guy sounds pretty smart. He seems very intelligent with his concepts, seems well-researched. What am I missing? <laughs> because at that point, I was transitioning from dismissing Bitcoin to deciding this was going to really be part of my life. Um, so thank you for that, Stefan. Um, hey, you're welcome. Yeah. I think actually, you know what, while we're, while we're here, I'll mention one thing just on this topic. I think this is probably an important concept for a lot of people. And I think a lot of the listeners, you know, a lot of your listeners are probably in this camp, right? So most, as in most people just want to follow the herd, right? They just want to follow the tribe and they and they would rather be wrong and with the tribe than correct and on their own, right? <laughs> and I think this is one area where probably if you're a listener of this podcast, you're, you're maybe a little more open-minded and a little more willing to kind of challenge things. And I think that is what makes somebody at least open to understanding Bitcoin a little bit earlier, right? And if you're, if you're here now in December, 2023, pre the Bitcoin ETF, you're still early. It's interesting you say that because I actually had someone question me about this concept. They're like, Tom, you guys are essentially a real estate brokerage. Why are you spending so much time talking about Bitcoin? And I kind of have to remind them that the reason the real estate brokerage started was because we were really trying to outpace debasement of the fiat currency. I mean, essentially, real estate was a vehicle and still continues to be a vehicle with its leverage to outpace that debasement. Correct. But Bitcoin yeah. came along and we thought, oh my gosh, this is another thing we can add to our toolkit that is a extremely powerful that we should no longer dismiss. And uh, so, yeah, ultimately we are trying to get people to think critically about economics, life, government, the world. Actually, let me, let me ask you something then. I didn't think I was going to go here quite this early. You uh, talk about libertarianism, libertarianism quite often, and I think you bring up the term uh, anarcho-capitalism. Right. For, so, for someone who has not been exposed to that concept or even those words before in that phrase, can you describe what that is and why has that captured your imagination and attention? So in two words, it's privatize everything. So not only is the food being privatized, we'd have the roads being done privately. We'd have equivalent of national defense being done privately, insurance privately, education, hospitals, everything, just privatize everything. And I think that may sound quote unquote extreme, but at the same time, consider the reactions and the interactions that most of us have in our day-to-day -day lives. You're just buying coffee from the guy, you're doing this, that, and the other. A lot of these things are not, they didn't need the government to take place. And so for me, it's more just, I, I view that as a as something that would be good to work towards. Now, to be clear, I think it's unlikely that it happens in my lifetime, but I think it's sort of like this idea that um, what if we could have a society where all the trades and interactions were voluntary as opposed to in the government context where it's sort of a forced trade, you have to pay them the taxes, you have to obey Trudeau's laws, you have to you know do, do this, that, and the other. When... Really, I think the market is a much more 
efficient and ethical way to go about it. So there's probably two main prongs there. One is an ethical approach of, hey, I'm not going to steal from other people and I'm not going to try to use the state or the government to steal from other people for me. I'm going to try to do things in a voluntary uh, context. And so it's it's coming from a viewpoint of private property is very important and we should try to do things voluntarily. I think that's kind of, if you can sort of grasp those ideas, the other concepts can sort of flow from there. But uh, ultimately, it, you know, if there are, if, if people are looking for detailed explanations on how could things work with like a decentralized quote unquote national defense and things like that, there's all kinds of books and research and things like that, that we can go to, but it's sort of the first principles idea is more about who is the true owner of your body and of your property. And if you are the real owner of it, then other people shouldn't just be able to regulate you or tax you without your consent. And so what, what would it be the primary pushbacks you typically get? I would think for, for a Canadian, they might just think of healthcare. So do you think that's completely private? Because some people I think would go back to you and say, oh, okay, all right, Stefan, like it would be nice if I, my neighbor breaks his arm and doesn't have the ability to pay for it. I'd like him to be able to get his arm fixed. So that's be, you're saying no, in, that, in, in my thinking, everything's private and it's up to every individual to take care of themselves. Right, now to be clear, there's still a role for voluntary interaction, private charity, family, community, church. And historically, there used to be this thing kind of like private welfare states, right? It used to be called mutual aid societies or beneficial societies. And this is actually what used to people used to do pre-government welfare state systems and government healthcare systems. So that's just an example of the kind of thing that could happen. And here's the other point I would make. I think, sadly, with government regulation, it has raised the cost and reduced the accessibility of many of these things. Mm -hmm. And I believe in a world with fully free markets, we would see prices coming down over time, right? And I know you have spoken with Jeff Booth and he speaks about this kind of deflationary future. I'm also a proponent of that idea. We're going to be moving into a world where if you are hodling Bitcoin, the prices of things are just going to be coming down over time. And so we're going to be in such a prosperous world that when your neighbor breaks his arm, there'll be a very cost-effective service that even if he can't afford it himself, his community, his family, somebody else can just stump up the money and make that happen. And as I've said, anarcho-capitalism to me is kind of like the theoretical ideal. I don't know if it happens in, you know, anytime soon. Sure. Sure. I think in practice, what we'll probably have is more like small states, right? Like minarchist or small states and maybe even city states, right? I'm thinking more like Singapore, Dubai, Hong Kong before the Chinese you know, uh, mm -hmm. Communist Party sort of came in there. I think I, that's probably something closer to what I think it might look like, this kind of smaller city states. And in fact, I am also an ambassador for this concept known as free private cities. So that's, that's kind of also another related idea, but I'll, I'll let you uh, take it where you where Yeah, got it. Like no, you're, go. you're, you're, bringing up a, you're bringing up a really interesting point. I never really thought about the cost of healthcare with prices going down and productivity and technology increasing. We should be able to reduce the price of things like healthcare as well. I never really associated all of Jeff Booth's thinking, what you just brought up with, for whatever reason, the, pro the, the price of getting people healthcare, but prices should fall everywhere, including the cost of getting people medical attention. And you're exactly. right. When you yeah, you're right. When measured in Bitcoin, the prices of that should fall against Bitcoin. And then there can be communities that are raising money for people that need it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some interesting concepts here that require some. So, so let me let me ask you this then. Is democracy, in your view, a, 
does democracy just a failed concept? Can it work yes. in the short term, but the long term, it just centralizes? Yeah. Can you expand on that? In just my a bit? view, democracy is actually a bad thing. It's a bad form of governance for society. And I I understand that could, that could sound controversial. It again. does sound controversial. But, yeah. 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 But um, because here's the thing in today's society, most people have kind of been programmed to this idea of, oh, democracy is good. Right. And you see this even when people say things like, oh, I'm going to democratize access to this. Right. They, they kind of mean it in the sense of I'm going to make it accessible to more people. That's really what they mean. But it's kind of, it's become a synonym for good. And it's not, it's really not. And here's why. It's counter to private property ownership. Now, why is that a problem? Because let me put it, let me put it in very simple terms. When you rent a car, let's say you're on holiday and you rent a car, you know, just to drive around for a few days while you're in this town. Do you change the oil? Do you go and, you know, get the windscreen wipers checked? No, because you are a short-term owner of that car. You are renting the car. You are not a long-term owner of the car. But if you bought that car and you plan to own it for 10, 20 years, well, definitely you're going to be checking the oil and doing all the, making sure the brakes get checked. It's kind of an obvious example, but hopefully it can spell out the difference in you know, temporary ownership and long-term ownership. And so there's a great book by Hans Hermann Hopper. He's an Austrian economist and it's called Democracy, the God that Failed. And so in that book, he spells out why in many ways, democracy is kind of like a soft form of socialism. And that if you truly believe in capitalism and private property, you should be anti-democracy. Why is that? Because what happens is in a democratic system, the elected ruler, let's say he's there for three or four years, he's just going to pillage the system and take, take as much as he can. And even... You know, many of those people in this context, the system is not set up for them to succeed. Whereas if somebody treats uh, a territory as his property, he cares about the long-term value because it's not just about him. He's thinking about, oh, okay, I want to have this and pass it down to my son. So I want to make sure I'm not just going to sort of pillage the thing and, you know, do this kind of, um, you know, short-termist thinking. I'm going to be thinking about the long-term. And so in that book, he actually makes the argument of why his argument is that monarchy is not perfect, but it's better than democracy. Why? Because he's, in his view, the ruler of that territory or city state or whatever, he is incentivized to care about the long term. He treats it like his property and he thinks about the long term. Whereas in, sadly, many parts of the world that are democratic, they really do just treat it like, hey, let me just... Let me loot the pillage. let me loot the treasury. Let me, pill, let me pillage. Yeah, yeah, let me pillage this thing and get as much of it out there and take the benefits. And we've all heard these stories of politicians who maybe you they commandeer government resources for their own benefit, whether it's government planes and cars and food and you know not all the nice things for themselves because they've only got the three or four years in there anyway, and they're just kind of pillaging what they can while they still can. They're not thinking about the long term. They're not thinking about sustainable, like truly what would be economically sustainable decades into the future. And that is what a private property capitalist system would incentivize. So it, it and it, it also does play into fiat currency and Bitcoin and things like this as well, because sure. I, I, I truly believe it's a similar thing with fiat versus Bitcoin. Bitcoin, when you hold it, you are really thinking about the long term. Right. I hold Bitcoin and I'm thinking I'm going to pass this down to my son and to future children I have. And I'm thinking about in, in those terms, I'm, you know, it, whereas in fiat world, we're often 
addicted to these short-term hits of attention. We want these little dopamine hits, right? Everybody nowadays, they're, they're scrolling their TikTok and Instagram and they want these little 10-second schizo <laughs> videos. Nobody's willing to, you know, sit down and actually read a book, you know, or, you know, you know, really stop and think and actually be bored. And maybe sometimes being bored and being bored is a good thing for us because it's kind of encouraging us to be creative. Like when you go on a walk and you're not kind of scrolling, you're actually having to think about things. So, you know, I think it's, it, it, a lot of these ideas are interrelated. So what is the leadership type then? If you, let's imagine like a city state comes to fruition, um, somehow when you said that, I just thought of Miami, even though Miami's in the US and it's probably not a good example, but if, if Miami was to turn into some kind of city state, what type of leadership is in that? Because we don't have a monarchy that has existed now in some of these areas. We don't have to pick on Miami, by the way, it could be anywhere, but what is the leadership that comes into play? there how does that how does that form going forward like let's think about going forward how does that leadership come into effect and what does that look like so as an example there are some guys trying to do this whole free private cities model so this is something that exists now notably in honduras there are two ones i've done episodes on my podcast for people interested eric bremen and the other one is uh massimo um massimo mazzoni and basically these are kind of like startup cities are almost like they've got the, they did an agreement to kind of have this ZA zone for economic development. Uh, the, the acronym is not that important, but the point is they are able to offer certain rules and certain low taxes or certain benefits. And they're trying to attract capital and attract people to come and work in the area, <laughs> whether that's local Hondurans to come and work there or sort of digital nomads and entrepreneurs who are going to come in and go there because they can get a certain low tax or low regulation environment. And so that's an example. And there are people trying to set these free private cities up all around the world. So that's an example of how these kinds of things could happen. And to some extent, people are trying to replicate the success of places like Singapore, Dubai, etc. And I think we are seeing multiple angles at this. So as an example, Naib Bukele of El Salvador has spoken of, you know, positively of Singapore and he's sort of trying to make El Salvador be kind of like a Singapore of the Latin Americas. That's an example. You know, uh, Javier Millet in Argentina is is an outspoken libertarian, explicitly trying to end the central bank, explicitly trying to make the state smaller. So there's all kinds of different approaches on how do we actually get there, whether it's libertarian politics at the, you know, at the ballot box. Uh, there's the kind of culture war approach. There's the set up a free private city. There's the free state um, approach, the free state project, which is New Hampshire in the USA. So there's all kinds of different ideas. Um, and I think Bitcoin is going to play a role in all of these things. It's funny. Um, I was out for a steak dinner with my brother-in-law last night, and he obviously hears me talking about Bitcoin and he is now into Bitcoin basically Maybe I've forced him to be into Bitcoin, Stefan. Who, who knows? But he's definitely into in, into Bitcoin. Um, but he asked me something interesting. He's like, "Why do you? Why do you and other people just keep talking about this thing? Like, I don't understand. Like, don't you have it all figured <laughs> out?" And I'm like, "Mario, there's so many layers to this thing. You don't understand. So, can I just pick your brain for a second here? What yeah, comes sure. to what is on your mind when it comes to Bitcoin today? Is it like BitVM that you know recently went out there, or is it like this the just maybe the drama with Ordinals or Lightning Network? You know, could you just talk about some of the things you're paying attention to right now and share those?" Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's the ever-present aspect of, okay, government debt and how unsustainable it is and how sure, people yes. are going to come into Bitcoin. You know, there's, there's the Bitcoin ETF stuff. Everyone's, you know, the 
consensus seems to be early January that the U.S. Bitcoin ETF is going to get approved or multiple ETFs. Are you? Are you a fan? Yeah. People. Where are you on that? I don't actually know your opinion. Are you pro well, ETF? Do you could care less about it? I mean, we can't stop it. At the end of the day, there will be a lot of people who use it. Of course, I want to encourage as many people to self custody as possible. Sure. But I understand there will be a lot of people who that's a bridge too far, at least now. So a lot of I'm viewing it like it's a funnel and there's going to be all these new people coming in and they are maybe high net worth people and they've got their E-Trade terminal or whatever it is and they can just buy the ticker. They can buy the whatever, the BlackRock, whoever, Fidelity, whatever. And that that's enough to give them comfort, right? Because, oh, it's BlackRock, right? In their mind, that's a good name from their perspective. And so they'll buy that BlackRock ETF then later they'll realize, wait a minute, actually the fees on this are kind of high. Maybe I should go over to Swan Bitcoin and buy Bitcoin with Swan or whoever and have have it on my own hardware wallet or in my own multi-sig vault. So, I mean, that's an example with the ETF. Um, of course, like this ordinals and inscriptions stuff, I mean, it's kind of bringing the conversation around what are Bitcoin on-chain fees going to be? Uh, and that is bringing up the conversation for people around what is the purpose of Bitcoin? Is it about money? Should it be about financial transactions or sort of data storage? And I think most people would have this view of it should be mostly about the money, but there are other people who have this view of, oh, I want to be able to use it for this data storage thing. Um, and then that in turn is also bringing up the conversation around accessibility of Bitcoin because on-chain fees were spiking. Now, I think as we speak today, in fiat terms, it's probably about $10 to get a tr Bitcoin on-chain transaction into the next block. But it did spike up to around fifty, sixty dollars uh, per transaction. Now, for some people, that's just—it's not affordable for them because maybe all they've got is two hundred dollars. And if you're going to spend two hundred dollars, spend sixty dollars transaction fee on two hundred dollars, it's kind of obviously not worthwhile. Um, but on the other hand, if you really zoom out and think about what Bitcoin is on a long-term time horizon, that's a bargain, right? We're talking about moving like. It's like luxury real estate, or it's like uh, you know, it's 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 like transacting this extremely premium thing, and so I think that's also uh, sort of pulling back up some of the conversations that were had around the block size war, because in the block size war days of 2016, 2017, there was a lot of consternation and argument amongst the community because people were saying, "Oh no, it should just always be cheap transactions," and others saying, "No, you're missing the point of what Bitcoin was or is." that it's not just about having tra cheap transactions, it's also about retaining these important elements of decentralization and understanding that people would be willing to pay $50, $100, even more than that per transaction. But there are people who are new and they weren't around in those days. And so now they're sort of understanding or at least going through that same conversation. Yeah, it's tough to get someone to make the leap that to acquire something that is pure digital scarcity, that is that has the ultimate scarcity. How much would you pay for that? And it is difficult to make that leap. It took me a long time to kind of get there. Like I was so focused just on the price of Bitcoin, the volatility of the price. It was just that fiat mindset. It does take some effort to make that transition to understand like, oh my gosh, I am yeah. buying a slight, my family is owning a slice of this very finite thing that can never be changed. And to your point, I can pass it down through generations. When you start thinking of Bitcoin as that, the whole world changes. Yeah, it right. it's sense, very, right? it is, yeah, it's very difficult to make that change. So like the fees that you're going to pay, can you imagine settling, uh, you know, what would be the, what is the value to an institution that's settling maybe 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, $100 million globally? 
you know, in 10 minutes, are they going to yeah. pay $60? dollars is a rounding error. For that. It doesn't yeah, matter. I, I don't think we're going to be interacting with the, you know, the main chain all the time. So, okay. Let me ask this then is, is lightning something that you are paying attention to that you care about? What can you tell oh, everybody 100%. about? Light okay. And so I've for been those a long people, time fan of lightning Go on. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So for those who are not familiar with it, can you just describe it and maybe explain why you're, you're, you're paying attention to it? Yeah. So Lightning is this idea of instead of trying to do all the transactions on chain, we take those transact or a, a good portion of those transactions off the chain. So in very simple terms, you can open a channel with somebody and sort of think of it like we have an abacus between us. And let's say I put 50 million Satoshis into that channel between you and me. And then I want to pay you 1 million Satoshis. Well, we just kind of move some of those beads and the abacus from my side over to your side. But here's the other complicated thing. It's not just between you and me. It's actually a routed network. So you might have a channel with somebody else uh, and then I can route through you to that person. Now, there's a lot of technical stuff. You don't really have to understand all the deep technical stuff. You just use a Lightning app and it kind of handles that in the background, right? There are consumer grade applications. As an example, Phoenix Wallet is a good example there where they handle all the compl complexity in the background. You can just pay and receive on Lightning and it the net result of it is that you can do less on-chain transactions, right? So as an example for me, when I'm earning and spending Bitcoin, I might only do one or two on-chain transactions per month. So as an example, that might cost me, you know, $20 or whatever. But then when I am actually spending on off-chain on Lightning, we don't have to, all. it's like all those transactions don't have to hit the chain. We don't have to do everything on-chain. We just kind of have to do one or two to kind of open, close or manage a channel. And so on net, I might do one or two transactions per month on chain, but I might do dozens off chain using lightning. And so that's kind of the, the high level idea. Now it's been around for a while. I believe the white paper came in 2015 or so. Mainnet was in 2018. And so it's been a journey. And I think in fairness, the view of who is going to use lightning has shifted also. I think this idea of B2B lightning has become a lot more popular. It's sort of seen like now maybe it makes a lot more sense for businesses to use lightning to mm. settle between each other. And there may be underlying customers who are customers of that business. Uh, whereas maybe in earlier days, people might've thought of it like, oh, just every individual will have lightning channels where maybe that won't necessarily be the case going forward. Well, the future is unknown. It could be that way. Um, uh, but for now, it's sort of, it sort of seems like it's going more in a B2B context or B2B direction with Lightning, but like still the, extremely useful. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess for anyone listening, I like the Abacus example too. And the other one I think that's tossed around a lot is like opening a bar tab where you kind of have this tab, you and I have a tab between each right. other of like how much we owe each other. Then at the end of the night, we're like, okay, let's you sort of settle it down. Let's yeah. settle up. And then we put it to the base chain or to the main ledger or whatever anyone can, whatever language you want to use to think about bake, uh, Bitcoin at the base. Um, and you kind of settle that tab. So with Lightning Network, this came up with Jeff Booth a little bit. It seems like there might be an opportunity. I mean, I mean, this fascinates me because I've heard a lot of people over the last few years talk about staking with other things that could be like the risk-free rate of return. And it right. frustrates me because a lot of that to me is just junk. But uh, with Bitcoin, I see this opportunity with Lightning. And I don't know if this is going to come to fruition, but it seems to me if it does, this could be truly a risk-free rate of return. Is there the technical capacity of Lightning for me to offer liquidity to the Lightning Network with some Bitcoin that I continue to custody that I can earn fees off of? 
Do you so see it evolving? The short is answer that- is okay. So the short answer is it's it's kind of a yes and no here. The short okay. answer is yes, you can do it, but I think for most people, it's kind of early days right now, and it's I would say unless you are a professional operator in that space. It's going to be difficult to make a reasonable amount of money on that um, because it still requires a lot of technical competence. And and in fairness, there are websites and services that kind of try to offer a marketplace. So for example, uh, amboss.space, I think is an example of this. And there are others out there that they're trying to kind of offer this marketplace where you can do this thing. Um, There are different approaches and sometimes people criticize and say, oh, we should do it in a more decentralized way. It should just be at the node level, liquidity ads and things like that. And again, some t- I don't want to get too into the sure. technical details, but the short answer is that for a lot of people, they are, you need a lot of technical ability to sort of really manage that properly. And there are people who've done this and there are some people who do this mm-hmm. kind of at a semi-pro level. I've got episodes on my podcast, in fact, with a guy, his his name was Zero Fee Routing. And he ran a node like this where he was trying to make money by selling liquidity. And so uh, the the end of that story though is he did end up shutting that node down because it was taking a lot of work for him to actually manage that. And I should also note, I think sometimes like a little bit of the marketing can get a little bit ahead of itself there because people say risk-free rate of mining. <laughs> Hang on. It's yeah. it's risk-free in the sense of, but it's not risk. Okay. So it's risk-free in the sense of like, yes, people are paying you, but it's not risk-free in terms of technology risks, right? There are all kinds of things that could go wrong. You could have a force close on that lightning channel. You still have to think about you know, yeah. So you still, it's still other early attacks. days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and okay. I would say it's early days, and it's probably still at the professional, maybe semi-pro level. It's probably not at the level that an everyday everyday person can just be like, oh, hey, let me just put some money on the yeah. Lightning network and yeah, just yeah, spend yeah, some yeah. money. And because I think what happened in earlier years, people sort of heard those terms and they kind of associated with, oh, passive income. Let me do. Let me. And then there was a kind of a kind of a a rush of the herd to this idea. But I think it was just a little bit early, and maybe. A lot of people didn't understand what they were getting into. Yeah, that's fair. Do you could it ever evolve into something, or do you think the competition? Oh, I see just potential in- there. I see yeah. potential there, but it's more like it still requires kind of work and time and more. Yeah, it's not here yet of the Lightning yeah, Network. Yeah, yeah, yeah because yeah. I, the the reason and now the Lightning Network is growing, but I would say it's probably not met the lofty expectations that people had from 2017, 2018. Like it's it's it. It has grown, but I, I'm trying to be fair here, right? Like I, I sure. like Lightning. I'm a promoter yeah. of Lightning, yeah. but I also don't want to oversell. Like I think it's sort of, it's grown and it is growing, but it's maybe not, it's not like widespread use today uh, by Bitcoin people, you know? Are, are, are there other solutions that you are paying attention to that you can share with any anyone listening? So I would say Lightning is probably the most developed in terms of non-custodial infrastructure. There are others that, make other trade-offs. So as an example, there's Liquid, which is a federated sidechain. It's kind of like a fancy multi-sig bank. So you're kind of trusting that the federation won't rug you or steal from you. There are people exploring that. There are people exploring other ideas that could come in the future, such as ARC or payment pools and some of these other concepts. But for some of these other concepts to really be brought in, I think it probably requires a soft fork in Bitcoin. So that's kind of that's sort of hmm, people talking about that also having covenants, which is like another idea that could help uh, in terms of 
Bitcoin scalability, Bitcoin security and custody, and maybe even some benefits at the mining level as well, if it were to enable more decentralization of Bitcoin mining. Hmm. It's interesting at this stage of Bitcoin being so early just to watch some of this evolution. You can kind of see, you see there's challenges with it, but you can also see that there's enough smart people working on it that it's going to, it's going to be next 10 years specifically, I think are going to be really interesting for anyone um, dealing with Bitcoin today. Are there any privacy tips, general privacy tips that you could share with them just that are good practices to follow? So the general ones are one, do not reuse addresses. Um, two is, you know, if you're focused on privacy, you have to think about your threat model. And that means who is, who am I trying to be private from? If I'm just trying to be private from a merchant or from kind of a low level surveillance, then maybe you take different steps to protect versus some like somebody who has a, a more serious threat model. Uh, people who are focused on privacy may purchase coins without KYC as an example. So they mm -hmm. may do that. Um, and they may use coin join techniques. So this is a privacy technique that they can use to obfuscate the history of their coins that they hold and that they are spending with. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a journey. Uh, it does require a little bit more of a cost and a little bit more work to understand how to do it and how to do that stuff correctly. You can, I believe you can do it, but I would say for a lot of people, they're just more focused on just stacking, like just accumulating, yeah, just the acquiring the Bitcoin and hodling and sort of they're focused on the longer term. Um, and I think privacy is a difficult area because it's one of those things where you can make just one little error and then all this other <laughs> stuff is undone. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the, the high level tips would be don't reuse addresses, try and accumulate some coins without KYC. Even if you have KYC coins, you, maybe you can have a, separate stack that's non-KYC as an example. And you, you can use privacy wallets and privacy techniques such as CoinJoin and other related techniques. And then what do you mean when you say, and I know this is maybe pretty basic for you to answer, but what do you mean when you, you're telling people don't you reuse addresses? Can you just explain that? Right, good point. So when you self-custody Bitcoin, so what this means is as an example, you get a Bitcoin wallet and then it can generate an address. So think of that like, that's like your, I mean, I'm again, oversimplifying, but it's kind of like your bank account number. And anybody who knows your bank account number can send you coins to that address, let's say. Now with that wallet, you hold the key. So only you can spend out of it. So you theoretically can reuse that address. But what I'm saying is as a privacy technique, your wallet can generate new addresses and you can receive into those instead. So that way you're not linking all of your financial transactions to the same address. You're kind of receiving things into different addresses, which makes it more difficult for somebody to try and uh, analyze what you're doing from a pure, you know, from a privacy heuristic level. So I have various episodes on my podcast that go into kind of privacy and like the defenses in, in that kind of aspect of it. Uh, but the short version of it is, yeah, just use privacy techniques such as CoinJoin wallets. And every, does every wallet allow you to use multiple receiving addresses like that? Is that possible? Like, does, I don't most. even know, does something simple like Blue Wallet allow that? Do you know? Yes. So that in most wallets, it's like a default practice, right? Like that wallet will sort of say, oh, I've received coins to this address. Okay, let me generate a new one for you. And then that's the one you can show people or copy paste to them and they can pay you into that address. 
So, and does every wallet yeah. almost have an unlimited amount of new receiving addresses it could use or no? Or less. So to... yeah, technically it's like 4 billion addresses or something like that. So yeah, more or less unlimited number of addresses that you can generate using a stand, most standard Bitcoin wallets. Okay. So if you, if you have a wallet, if you're listening to this and you have a wallet, you basically can receive and the re to different addresses. And when you receive to different addresses, Stefan, the reason that you would want to do that is it's an open ledger. So anyone, any address that you share when you're receiving Bitcoin, someone can look at how much Bitcoin is associated with that address, but they can't right. determine the other addresses that are in your wallet. So they can't see all the Bitcoin that you might be holding in that wallet, just what's associated with that one address. Is that a fair? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. We're actually fortunate in Canada with, um, with bull Bitcoin. I'm not sure if you know the bull guys. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Bull Bitcoin. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we can do non KYC at a thousand dollars or less at Canada right. post. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, you can actually go, you can set up, I guess, something like a blue wallet and walk in, I guess the blue wallet would be on your phone. Yeah, there's many privacy concerns here. But anyway, at a high level, yeah. you could go into Canada Post and receive to your uh, to a blue wallet and you can get non-KYC Bitcoin. I think it's like a $1,000 limit per transaction right now, um, which is a good way to do that if you wanted some non-KYC Bitcoin. I'm just thinking we went through the whole trucker thing here, Stefan, like I'm sure you're yeah, aware yeah. of. So if you wanted to make a donation to someone, you'd probably want to use some Bitcoin that's not tied to you directly. And in Canada right now, there are some ways to do it. But just thinking, just articulating this to you now, I'm thinking of all the steps and privacy is really kind of complicated when you think about it. Jeez. Um, yeah. And uh, I know, um, I believe Bull Bitcoin have now worked it into an app as well. So for Canadians- I think they're about to release actually, it. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. I don't think we have our, we're, we're all anxiously waiting on this app. Hey everyone, it's Tom Kratz. I'm interrupting the podcast. Yes, I am. I'll be really quick and I'll explain why. Over the last few years may have heard us talk about three buckets in your financial li life. You need an access to one bucket, which is short-term liquid cash to just pay your mortgage, pay your rent, buy groceries for emergencies, that kind of thing. Another bucket would be creating hard assets in your life that are also income producing. Everybody we believe needs at least a second stream of income or the ability to accumulate enough hard assets to really produce an income stream that's meaningful in your life. To us, that has been real estate. It's why we run the Rockstar Inner Circle membership. It's why we have over 20 classes as that membership. And we're trying to get an information advantage on real estate investing, how to do it properly and safely and reduce the risk as much as possible. Not that you can ever reduce it to zero, but with information, we can kind of mitigate our risk in real estate as much as humanly possible. And there's this third bucket, which is your long-term savings. And we never, never really had a good plan for that. We looked at gold for a little while. Obviously, if you've been listening to this, you know, Bitcoin has become a big thing for us with that particular bucket in your long-term savings. So if you're fortunate enough to be able to accumulate some long-term savings and you want a place to put it, we highly recommend you dive into Bitcoin. It's why we're doing episodes like the one that you're listening to right now. And if you want a resource in Canada on where to buy Bitcoin, because that's why we're asked, that's sorry, that is what we are asked quite often. We currently really like bull Bitcoin. We like the guys there. They're Bitcoin only. They are all about education. They will walk your hand and educate you through this process if you've never bought Bitcoin before. And if you use the URL rockstarbtc.ca, you will get $20 of free Bitcoin when you fund your account. So that's rockstarbtc.ca. 
btc.ca. If you go through that URL to get to Bull Bitcoin, they have done that as an offer to you, one of the listeners of the Your Life, Your Terms show. So that's what we wanted to extend out to you. And if you're looking for a place to buy Bitcoin, we couldn't recommend them highly enough. And you know we don't do this, so you know we're strong believers in Bull Bitcoin because we rarely talk about anyone on this particular show of any sort. So Bull Bitcoin is our current favorite. You can visit them by going to rockstarbtc.ca, set up an account, and when you fund that account, you'll get a free $20 in Bitcoin. Let's get back to the show. Right, You're right, right. So I don't yeah, think I it's- I saw he demonstrated, Francis demonstrated at the Canadian Bitcoin conference, which I, you know, I was there. Um, and so that'll be cool. That'll be a really uh, great way to do it. Um, and yeah, there's lots of services out there. Um, so yeah, that'll be an example. Yeah. Okay, Stefan, I just want to switch gears a little bit. Why are you living, you're living, am I allowed to share where you're living? We can talk about Dubai. this. Okay. UAE, you're, yeah. living in, you're living in Dubai. This just fits with your, you know, uh, principles. Why are you in Dubai? How's Dubai? What's going on? So the main thing for me, I, I was really interested in low taxes. Uh, my wife likes that it's very safe here. It's pretty good uh, convenience and services. And it, because Dubai is very connected as a flight hub, it's easy to fly around for events and things as well. Um, and yeah, there's a great community here as well. Like we have our Bitcoin meetup, we have our Austrian economics meetup. <clears throat> yeah, and we get a lot of people coming through and often get a chance to meet up with people. And yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, overall spot. Uh, I would say, you know, I'm not saying it's like kind of everyone has to go here. I'm just saying you have to find what works for you. And if you are annoyed at high taxes or other things in, you know, in the Western world, then you can find other countries out there that have other trade-offs and other, you know, lower taxes and things like that. And getting status there, you can get a work status or visitor status fairly easily. Yeah. So it's relatively easy to get a visa here because you can basically, it's kind of like a pay to play system, right? Like you can buy a visa where there's different paths. There's a freelancer visa. You can set up a company and give yourself a visa off of that. There's also an option where you can buy property and give yourself a visa off of that. So there's different ways that you can basically pay a fee and get a residency permit that way. And there's no personal income tax here. There is a 9% corporate tax, uh, but there's certain carve outs and exemptions there too. But in terms of personal income tax it's very beneficial because there's no capital gains tax, no personal income tax. So it's um, very useful from that perspective. You must be able to feel very fortunate. This is obviously very, you're very passionate about the subject. You're working with Swan Bitcoin. You're running your podcast. I mean, you're living a life that I feel is very aligned to your principles at this point. You must be feeling frustrated about how some of the world works, no doubt, but also feel very blessed at where you are right now. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I'm very happy with, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, yeah. Sorry, go on. Yeah. No, you're an interesting character. How did you get to this point? Like, what's your backstory? Like, where were you born? Like, how do you get into Austrian economics? In 2012, you said you stumbled into Bitcoin. I don't get it. Like, where were you born? Like, what's your family story? <laughs> so I was here? born you... in Sri Lanka, um, okay. but I was raised in Australia. So I was raised in Sydney, Australia. So I'm an Australian citizen. Regular, and... a reg you went to regular school there? Yeah, yeah. Siblings? Do you have siblings? Yeah, I got a little sister. And yeah, it's like, I grew up in Sydney. I went to, you know, Catholic schools, went to a Catholic boys Same high here. school, went to Same university. Here, yeah. yeah um, and so, but the thing for me was around the age of 14 or 15, I was on IRC. So for listeners who don't know, I was on internet relay chat and I was in some Australian politics channel and this guy kept linking to Mises daily articles. 
And that's Mises Institute, Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. And so I would go there and read those articles and think, uh, you know, you know, wow, th- it's making so much more sense than what they're teaching me at school. And so that was how I started going into the libertarian and Austrian economics world before Bitcoin, before Bitcoin even existed, right? So I, that was kind of my sort of first exposure. You're young uh, at this point. Like what year are we talking? How old are you doing this? So You're I'm, in high school? Yeah, I was like 14 or 15-ish at that and point. And so you've so always, was, yeah. always been inclined to read about economics at 14 or 15? Well, I guess I just kind of, it's one of those things that just kind of stumbled into it you know like i was in a chat room and some i was kind of arguing with this guy or whatever we were talking about (laughs) politics and i guess that was what kind of he just sort of linked to some of these things now at the start i thought oh this is crazy that'll never work and then over time it it just sort of dawned on me that wait a minute this is actually making a lot more sense and so then yeah i just sort of went down that rabbit hole and so i was an austrian and anti-central banking before bitcoin Mm -hmm. and so then coming to bitcoin obviously I was primed, right? Like if you're already anti the central bank, well, hey, Bitcoin is your jam. So yeah, so that's kind of what it was for me. Now I had a professional career back when I was in Australia. I was a chartered accountant, started my career at Deloitte, one of the big four you know, uh, professional services firms. I was working in banking for a little while, but also I was living this kind of quote, quote unquote double life of being anti-federal reserve or anti-central banking. And so... I had, you know, that interest in Bitcoin and I was hodling and, and uh, at the same time trying to teach people about Bitcoin. But of course, it's kind of difficult to get through to people. Um, but I think we've made a lot of progress over time. And I, by say um, we, I mean all the sound money advocate people, whether that's Bitcoiners and gold dogs even, because I would say when I was trying to tell people about Bitcoin in 2013, I had to explain what the term fiat money meant. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, I don't have to explain what the term fiat money means. Most people who are kind of savvy, they understand what the term fiat money means. So we're making progress in certain ways. It's slow, but you have to keep repeating yourself and you have to be patient and you can slowly reach people and help them see why the fiat system is so flawed and this, you know, this it it drives this crazy leverage effect, right? Where, where you know you're a real estate guy, obviously the leverage effect is key. It's key, key, key to how people have made money in real estate because the normal returns just on one property unlevered are usually not enough, right? Like you'd have to- It matches like M2, of, it kind of matches M2 growth. Exactly, right? Like what kind of, and I know in real estate world, they talk about the cap rate, right? So in most of the Western countries, it's probably somewhere between four to 6% after costs, right? That's like your net rate. You, no one's getting rich on four to 6%. But no, what you happens need the leverage, you, you need the leverage. Yeah, but if you, once you lever up and now you're talking 5X or 10X, okay, now you're talking something- serious right and that's kind of where people start to make a lot of money out of real estate and then of course once you get to bigger and bigger deals maybe not just residential but you know larger commercial level deals or just kind of big residential deals i can understand or again i'm not an expert in that world obviously you're you're an expert in that world but from what i understand that's where you get this benefit of unlocking bigger multiples because now you're dealing with another class up and so that is all a consequence of fiat currency. It's all downstream of the printer, which is sad in some ways, but it's also a good thing that we're all learning about it now and more people are able to really grasp what what is this problem? Why is it that 
the average person can't even afford a house in many parts of the world. And, I'm, and you're in Canada. I know, you know, the Vancouver property market and probably Toronto as well Same. are famously out of reach. Sydney and Melbourne, are, you know, in Australia are very much out of reach for an average person. So, you know, something's got to give. And I think Bitcoin is going to be a big part of, you know, what gives. I want to ask you the biggest threats to Bitcoin in a second. But first, what do you think the next 10 years looks like with Bitcoin's evolution? I mean, there's got to be a compounding effect here from the time you got in to, to look at someone like me in 2020. I would think this is a different type of generation of Bitcoiners or different type of Bitcoiners. What do you envision over the next 10 years? Do you see a slowly then suddenly moment occurring in the next 10 years? Or is it just this kind of perpetual grind of more and more Bitcoiners? How do you see yeah. the next? So and I guess that can be different. Question, yeah. Go ahead. Well, go going ahead. back to your question around who came in, right? In the early days, it was, you know, cypherpunks, cryptography people, and sort of computer nerds, real hardcore computer nerds. Then it was maybe libertarians and like drug you know, people for the Silk Road and stuff like that. So that was kind of like the other demographic. And then you kind of had maybe some of the macro guys kind of come in at that point. Then yeah, that's maybe, fair, yeah. You know, yeah. and then in 2017, you sort of had this kind of gambling kind of ICO craze. And then you've had kind of, you know, 2021, 2020 cycle, you kind of had another round of gambling and let's say a broader, you know, somewhat broader retail uh, coming in. I think high net worth investors are going to come in in this next big cycle. I think inv the investor class, especially with the ETFs available, mm -hmm. I think that is going to be the next kind of big wave of people coming in. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of people who they need multiple touch points to really learn what Bitcoin is. So maybe like the first me. time they like heard me. about it. Yeah. yeah. Right. And yeah. even for yeah. me, like the first time I heard about it, I kind of disregarded it, but then you sort of, it comes back right? How, yeah. how's this thing back? How can it be that this one thing has gone die? up and down, you know? Yeah. yeah. I thought it was dead, right? That's what people think. They think, oh, it's gone down 50%. It's gone. It's never coming back, blah, blah, blah. And the next thing it's, it's back. And now all of a sudden there's a whole new round of people who take it seriously. So yeah. So to answer your question about, you know, what's what I see over the next 10 years, I see more and more cycles coming. So we've had cycles before. I believe we're going to have a few more, at least a few more cycles. So and by cycle, you, know, we, you mean kind of like waves of the of the fiat adoption. price of it? Just, we, oh, waves yeah. of adoption. Got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that too. It. I mean, and that will be reflected by seeing these kind of big price waves because what happens is people are herd animals. They see everyone else run in. And mm. then what happens is each cycle, there's kind of OGs who are dumping at the top kind of thing. Or they start selling some because they want to, for whatever reason, maybe they want to buy a house, they want to buy a There's car some lifestyle. You've got to live too. Yeah, sure. Right. And we yeah, don't live yeah. forever. So you, yeah. you kind of can't blame those OGs who are selling some coin or whatever. But that's fundamentally what happens. And so eventually, you in each cycle, you sort of reach an exhaustion of buyers. And then that's kind of, that's the top. That normally marks mm -hmm. the top. And then you start to, and then we sort of have this kind of bear cycle. And that's typically where we get the 70 to 80% drawdown. And some of those people who came in, some of the new coiners who came in, in that run up in the heat of the bull run, they didn't really know what they were buying. They just kind of bought this thing. But in that bear <laughs> cycle, then they start learning, oh, okay, let me watch some podcasts. Let me read some books. Okay. Now they've learned what this thing actually is. And now they become a stacker and now they sort of help set the floor the next time. And then in a few years, we sort of rinse and repeat all over again. And that seems to have been the cycle that has played out. And I anticipate we probably have a few more go-arounds of that to come.
uh, in terms of Bitcoin world. Now, in the broader macro world, it's hard to predict because realistically, there's too many moving parts, right? What does the central bank do? What does the government do? What do people do? Do they stop buying government bonds? Do they sell government bonds? Do they start? Do they all run to Bitcoin? I mean, I wish they would, but there's too many things that we, we can't yeah, really difficult. predict. Difficult. So it's and it's so it's such a confidence yeah. game in the fiat world, and 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 so many people in the fiat world, pension fund managers, they're just dictated by what they're allowed to invest in. But you're right when you're describing the waves like that. I guess the waves are getting larger or broader. You know, they are kind yeah. of attracting. I think next year will be interesting to see, I think, with some of the new accounting rules of some corporate treasurer somewhere, right. look at what yeah. Michael Saylor has done and say, okay, maybe I'm going to put some on the books here. What do you think? Uh, do, you, do you, Is that a trend that you're interested in seeing? I assume you are next year. Yeah, for US I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's the Michael Saylor micro strategy use case, I think is going to be a very popular one. There will be a lot of businesses and high net worth people who just... Hey, let me just buy some and store some. Just hodl, buy and hodl. That is the use. You know, I think sometimes people get distracted with sort of oh, doing commerce with Bitcoin. Now, I earn and spend Bitcoin personally, but I think most people will just buy and hodl, and that's okay, right? There'll be a lot of people who just buy and save with Bitcoin, and that is going to help bring Bitcoin to broader adoption. And then once there's broader adoption, then we'll start to see more people actually buying and selling and actually trading with Bitcoin directly, like buying and selling their food with Bitcoin, that kind of thing. Whereas now that's a very small percent of the overall Bitcoin use case. And we can know this objectively as well. If you look at some of those statistics on looking at how the coins have moved, you can see that most of the coins have not moved. Objectively speaking, most people's use case for Bitcoin is hodling. You know, And so I think that, so if you can't save, it's kind of hard to use Bitcoin for a lot of people. So I think that's for most that's on my, people. Honestly, what you just said is on my mind a lot, that a lot of people cannot grasp the concepts, concepts of Bitcoin because if you're not able to save and the yeah. fiat world has prevented saving, like really when you someone would kind of deduce like, oh, Tom, if I'm going to buy $50 in Bitcoin, well, really, you know, what's the point? I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I can't save any money anyway. That frustrates me to no end, Stefan, that we're in a place in the world where people have difficulty saving. And I know, I know it must for you as well. Yeah. Um, so let me add something there. I think you can't know until you've tried. So for some people, you're trying to help them and you don't know if them buying that first $50 is what ticks them off down the, down the rabbit hole. And now they, okay, you know, that's they start, fair. That's fair. You know what I mean? Like okay. yeah, they could buy their first $50 of Bitcoin, then go watch a Michael Saylor podcast and watch some of my podcasts, watch your mm -hmm. podcast. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, boom, now they are hardcore Bitcoiner, yeah. you know, they're down the rabbit hole, but they could also go the other way. They could just buy $50. It just kind of sits there and languishes until another cycle. And now they take, you know, so you can't know. You're right. And but, I guess if you but, had that yeah. $50, when I, when I, when I thought it was dead was the 2017 cycle. And I remember seeing the peak and I was kind of laughing like, ah, tulip bubble. And I yeah. saw those charts. And then I think it was 2018. I checked the price of it. I don't know why. I had no idea. I checked the price, Googled it up. And I think I saw it, or you would know better. Maybe it was around 6K, something around there. Yeah. And I remember it stunned me. Like it completely stunned me because I thought, oh my gosh, like, why isn't this zero? Like, I don't understand why it's not zero. 
how's this at 6K? I still did nothing, Stefan. Didn't do anything else. But I had, an, <laughs> it was like another step in my evolution of understanding like, oh, you know, um, let me ask you something. I just want to get your thoughts. What are some of the biggest threats? Because I get that asked a lot, probably more than what are some of the positives of Bitcoin at this point? You know, what are some of the biggest threats to Bitcoin in your, we could take this in a lot of different directions. I guess there could be nation state threats. There's all types of different threats, but what are the top ones that come to mind for you? Are, are there any? I don't really see a lot. I mean, yeah. So why is that? Why, why? Why? Because it's been attacked in different ways over the years yeah, so many times already? Yeah, because I already? sort of see it. It's like, okay, maybe regulation, like government regulation and government, you know, trying to sort of slow Bitcoin adoption at best. But I just, everything that they will try is temporary at best. They tried to ban China, mining in China how many times? And then there was that big time in 2021 where they said that where they thought, okay, this is it. It's definitely bad. And even today, it's probably still 10 or 15% of the Bitcoin mining network hash rate is coming out of China. In Nigeria, you know, in, in Pakistan, in India, they've made F, they've made attempts to try to shut off the on-ramps and people went to peer-to-peer. -peer. So I really don't see it. Like it's, I mean, it's, what about in the yeah, U.S. No. talking about those big mining pools? I see that online a little bit now. Like, oh my gosh, the mining. There's two mining pools that are just so big, and they can start. Um, they can start right. choosing. So people some talk about like foundry plus ant pool. Now, to be yeah, clear, like foundries it, in the U.S., ant pools, I think, in China, and so even that is kind of like how you're going to coordinate across different states, right? But ultimately, I think there's a lot of people in Bitcoin who are working to keep decentralizing, and. I think they are succeeding in that aspect. As to whether government can successfully capture Bitcoin, I think it's unlikely. I think it's very, or very, very unlikely. Um, just given that there's not really a central capture point to go after, right? Whereas historically, when it came to like Liberty Reserve or eGold, the government was able to shut those things down. Whereas with Bitcoin, I don't really think so. And so I think it's just going to, go elsewhere. It's going to go to other countries. There'll be other adoption, uh, even if certain countries try to crack down harder on it. And they will be excluding themselves from the benefits of Bitcoin. And that'll be a big cost for them longer term. So, uh, you know, I, I'm just, I just don't really see any big threats, to be honest. Like, I think, you know, maybe you could say if people get complacent, right? I think maybe that's probably the one you mm -hmm. hear some people talk about, this idea that, hey, if a lot of Bitcoin people just get complacent, then uh, maybe something could happen at that point where they you know, try to compromise things somehow. Yeah. But even then, it, it just seems like how are they realistically going to stop it, right? I, ultimately, there are people who are running Bitcoin nodes all around the world. There are people who are hodling all around the world. There's people using multi-sig all around the world. There's kind of all sorts of, you know, contributors and people working. Yeah, there's on not one, for anyone listening who doesn't understand, there's not one single on-off switch to say like, okay, I'm turning this off. And that's what I didn't understand for a long time, as embarrassing as that is to admit, Stefan. I didn't get that. I didn't understand the decentralized and the power of that. So that's kind of, once you understand that concept, you're right. The US or Canada could say, hey, listen, it's just completely banned. But it's just Canada not participating in this thing. It's not like Bitcoin's going away anymore. Yeah, exactly. And what we're seeing is people play the jurisdictional game, right? If they if they if they see it like, hey, taxes are high in this country, I'll go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, especially once people have sort of started accumulating uh, Bitcoin, and then they see, oh, wow, it's kind of done well for me. Why do I need to stay here? I can go somewhere else. 
So mm. I just don't see, I think the more likely case is just that more and more people come to adopt Bitcoin and they just treat it like they're upgrading their savings. They just upgrade their savings into Bitcoin and they just keep saving and they live their lives. Mm -hmm. Nice and simple. You're right. absolutely okay. On that note, Stefan, where where can people find you? What are you the, the podcast? What you're doing at Swan? Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So I obviously I do the podcast. I do Bitcoin and Austrian economics, like we've spoken about. And so people can find you know in my back catalog now. I've, I've done over 500 episodes, so people can just sort of. If they're interested, they can sort of go back to my early episodes and just kind of pick through. You don't have to listen to all of them, obviously, but you just kind of pick through what's interesting. And that might be a good way for people to on-ramp. A lot of people have effectively on-ramped into Bitcoin by doing that, whether that's Bitcoin developers, entrepreneurs, investors, all kinds of people. Uh, and of course, at Swan. So Swan, we make it easy for people to buy and learn about Bitcoin. We also came out with a course recently. So this might be interesting for some listeners. It's swan.com slash welcome so that's an easy one for people less than one hour it's nicely curated in a nice course format for people so swan.com welcome is a great welcome to bitcoin course for people to uh, get started and learn about bitcoin Stefan, thank you very much for doing this please keep what you're uh, doing what you're doing um there's a bunch of us out here who you don't know who are taking a lot of benefit <laughs> from you so thank you really really no worries. thank you Stefan. thank you thanks for having me Hey everyone, hopefully you enjoyed that chat with Stefan. You can find him on Twitter at Stefan Lavera, and that is at S-T-E-P-H-A-N, Stefan Lavera, L-I-V-E-R-A, and we will link to that on the show notes of this episode as well. Hopefully you enjoyed that chat, and if you want to look into becoming a Rockstar Inner Circle member, you can check us out at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.